Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 182 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I have been excited about this episode for a while. Our guest is Cheryl Batchelder, and whether you are a business leader or a church leader, I think you are going to absolutely love today's episode. I know we have a growing number of business leaders listening, which I'm really excited about. We hear from you guys Thank you so much for doing what you do. And I got to tell you, as a former lawyer, like leadership issues are just kind of leadership issues, whether you're the pastor of a church, whether you're leading a department in church, whether you're in finance, law, a startup, whatever you happen to be doing, man, we all kind of struggle with the same issues. And Cheryl Batchelder had a really difficult situation on her hands about 10 years ago. In 2007, she became the CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. And uh, it was a tough situation. They had struggled for a long time. They were kind of stuck. They were not nearly at the top of their industry. And in the decade that she served as a CEO, oh my goodness, were there ever changes that she brought about. The improvement of restaurant performance led franchisees to like remodel the entire system. And what they saw was they grew in market cap from less than $300 million to over $1.3 billion. Their revenues grew to $3.1 billion a year by the end of 2015. They had grown to over 60,000 employees in the United States, three territories, and 27 countries. It's an incredible story. And Cheryl was so generous with her time, she basically gives us a masterclass in leadership. This is like, you know, your EMBA. I, I, I really think so. It's, it's incredible. So you're going to want this. You're probably also going to want to see the show notes. So you can head on over to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 182. And I would encourage you to become a subscriber. Uh, not only will you not miss episodes like this, but you will get so much goodness, not just in the future. We've got great guests coming up, but like this is episode 182. You can go back and hear from giants like Henry Cloud and Andy Stanley. I've got uh, Ravi Zacharias on the podcast, Craig Grishel, so many others, and business leaders as well. Greg McEwen, Les McEwen, they're, they're not related, but <laughs> they both have the same last name. And uh, you'll find a treasure trove of just great information. So if you subscribe for free, wherever you're listening to this, you'll get it every single week. Anyway, Cheryl, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. We are all going to benefit from that today. And speaking of leadership, uh, I know so many leaders, whether that's in church world or in business world, who just kind of struggle with like this low-grade burnout where maybe you're not burned out, but like you're not thriving. And if you've ever found yourself there, I would encourage you to head over to thehighimpactleader.com. Uh, that's a course that I offer that has helped thousands of leaders get their life and their leadership back. It is open for a couple of more days. Uh, it will actually be open until Thursday, March the 8th. So if you're listening to this the week of broadcast, you've still got time. And then we're going to close it down. And we're going to close it down, and it will come back in the future, but not at this price. And this is the course that has helped thousands of leaders get time, energy, and priorities working in their favor. They do better at work, and they have more time with their family. So if you've been like playing with time management and kind of like, okay, I think I've gone as far as I can with that, 
You need to get a better system because it's not just time management, it's energy management and priority management that I think are really going to make a difference in your life. So I would love for you to head on over to thehighimpactleader.com now before it's too late and the price goes up. And uh, we've got some extra bonuses for you there as well. So I wanted to tell you about that. Also, whether you lead a small church or a large church, everybody struggles with volunteer recruitment. It's just true. So I sat down with Scott Magdalene. He is the founder of TrainedUp.Church. And I asked him, hey, even large churches, what do they struggle with when it comes to training their teams? You have the challenge with the same thing, but it's a different kind of challenge. So training volunteers in a large church, the, the problem tends to sh shift towards scalability and also accountability. So you have a team of 100 or 200 or 300 volunteers and get like those churches tend to understand scalable training, but they 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 lose out on the accountability. Like who in my team is trained? Who in my team is ready to serve? Who in my team is ready to take the next step from serving to maybe leading a team of servants? And so that scalability with accountability is really difficult when it comes to large ministries because number one, there's not a whole lot of transparency when it comes to who's in my you know who's in a, the room during this training meeting. And number two, when you have hundreds of people, you may not know everybody. You may not be able to as a leader keep up you know, up to date on everybody's status and their engagement and everything. And so um, keeping track of who has learned, who is trained, who's ready to go is really difficult when you have lots of volunteers. Well, you can see we've all got similar challenges, and I would encourage you to head over to trainedup.church and check out what Scott has got to offer you. And because you're a podcast listener, when you use the coupon code CARRY on checkout, you will get 10% off for life. So on checkout at trainedup.church, use the coupon code CARRY, C-A-R-E-Y, you'll get 10% off for life. Well, now, without much further ado, it is my pleasure to bring you my conversation with the absolutely brilliant former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Here is Cheryl Batchelder. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. It's really good to have you. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. I look forward to our conversation. So we met at Rethink Leadership two years ago, and uh, your story, I think, has only become more fascinating since. Um, let's go back to the beginning, because Popeye's is probably what you're best known for at this point to date, uh, and you had an incredible decade as the CEO there. But when did you know and when did you decide that you wanted to be a leader in the corporate world? Like, did you start in your childhood, in, in school, in college? How did you know, hey, one day... I'm going to be in, I'd love to be a senior leader. You know, as you were saying that, I was uh, thinking of my two sisters and my brother. I think I'm the oldest of four children. I think they would tell you I was born a leader, much to their disdain. But um, I was a built-in babysitter and uh, helped my parents raise them, is how I always said it as a child. Uh -huh. Were you the eldest? Uh, I was the oldest. Um, and I do think birth order has some meaning in development of mm -hmm. a leader. Um, you be, you're certainly the oldest, always a little more confident, maybe uh, steps out a bit more in leadership roles. But the first time I really remember thinking about myself as a leader in business was about my freshman year of college, about 18 years old. My dad was a successful business leader in international business. He was based out of Hong Kong at that time. So my siblings and mom lived in Hong Kong. I was in college at Indiana University you know, really trying to figure out what I was going to do. Uh, and I had started college as a music major. So I oh, wow. quickly found out that that was not my path. And uh, I started looking around to say, you know, really, what do my talents and gifts add up to? 
And I think watching my dad uh, lead a manufacturing organization really showed me that I love the role of organizing and arranging the people and the resources to get good things to happen. I learned a lot from watching him um, and started to really shape my education and then my career around that notion. Your dad used to drill you around the dinner table, didn't he? Don't you write about that? Like, tell us about that. Absolutely. I think most of my life lessons were at the dinner table. Hmm. And as I look back on them, uh, they weren't, he didn't download his whole work week and all the lessons we should learn from it. But there was always a story about the workplace. And the moral of the story was what he wanted to impress upon us. So they were often about how you treat people with dignity is one of the ones I remember the most. Uh, because he did hire a lot of people. He often had to lay off people if business went down. Uh, and he would talk very sensitively about the anxiety around making those kinds of changes and the importance of the leader really sweating those decisions carefully and taking good care of the people. So I learned a lot of lessons around the dinner table. Mm. Now, as a woman who was thinking about leadership, uh, did that seem intimidating or daunting when you were entering the corporate world? Or you're just like, well, of course I can do it. How, how did you process that? I often wonder about that, too. My parents raised three girls and a boy, and all four of us became business leaders, either a president, COO, or CEO, of a company. And so I've gone back and reflected, what did they do that led us to all pursue leadership? Mm -hmm. um, and I think the number one thing they did was in, say encouraging things. My father never said I couldn't do something except once. He watched me try to do a cartwheel in gymnastics class and said, Cheryl, I don't think you're going to be a gymnast. Well, I'm hmm. six feet tall. I, I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to be a gymnast, and I never learned how to do a cartwheel. But to have your only memory uh, of childhood, you know, be encouraging words, you can do it, you can try it, you can explore it, you can uh, go to that school, you can try that job. They just believed that we could kind of do what we put our minds to and do what we were prepared to do. Lots of encouraging words. I've tried to remember that with my children because I think it's so easy to uh, criticize our children or expect more of them. And it's so much more powerful uh, to simply encourage what they're gifted to do. Well, I think this, uh, you know, your run at Popeyes is going to be written up at Harvard Business School and many other schools for years to come. A lot of people call it one of the greatest turnarounds or uh, you know, sprints in recent corporate history. So just to recite a few facts, under your leadership, Popeye's added more than a billion dollars in sales, stock quadrupled. Um, you grew the company to 2,700 locations and you sold it to BKE, a large um, capital firm, for 21 times earnings, which is a record. And yet four years before you started at Popeye's, as you've shared publicly, you were fired, actually. You were fired, released as president of KFC, and you'd had, you know, a few opportunities before that. You were at Procter & Gamble, Gillette, RJR Nabisco, Yum Brands, Domino's, and then KFC. What do you think prepared you for that incredible run at Popeye's over a decade? And how were you developing in those early years resiliency as a person and as a leader? I've come to understand that the most important lessons of leadership 
come from trials and tribulations. Mm. And I would frankly tell you early in my career, I didn't have enough of that. Um, you know, I had lots of wins and exciting jobs and uh, good development as a leader. Uh, but boy, the KFC experience of not being able to turn around the company fast enough and get sales up and make the boss happy and the shareholders uh, was really the biggest um, confrontation I'd ever faced as a leader, biggest yeah. disappointment for sure. But I've told many people that I spent four years analyzing what went wrong, why why it happened, what I would do differently after uh, leaving KFC in the fall of 2003. I took the Popeye's job in the fall of 2007, and I would tell you that every tenant of my leadership plan for Popeye's came from failure. Um, really? You don't absolutely you don't know where your convictions lie until you're tested. And I had to sort through that firing experience and say, this is what I'm accountable for. This is what was wrong with the environment or situation. These are principles that the next time I have the opportunity to leave, I will not violate. And one as an example is what I'm probably best known for at Popeye's is putting the franchise owners first in everything mm -hmm. that we did. And that came directly out of my experience uh, at KFC where I came to understand the size of their investment, their commitment to building the buildings, hiring the people, training them, serving the customer. And they have everything on the line. And yeah. our job as corporate executives is to get it right for their business proposition. And so all that, all that conviction came from uh, getting to know those KFC franchisees and not serving them well and realizing that's what I'm accountable for, and that will change the game the next time I have the opportunity to serve. I wonder if that was a surprise to you, because you'd had a pretty good run. I mean, some successes. So for those of you who don't know Cheryl's story, I mean, did you not invent, what did they call it, the heated pizza box? Like, and, <laughs> and gummy lifesavers, right? Like, those are two different companies, Yum Brands, but... Lifesavers was in trouble, and you came up with three ideas, I guess the, the best of which was um, like gummy bear lifesavers, which really turned things around. And then you invented the, the heated pizza delivery box for Domino's, which was incredible, out of like a grade six science experiment. Like you'd, you'd had a good pedigree up until that point. Well, it is true. My, you know, everybody starts their career in one particular discipline, and mine was marketing and product innovation, and that's where I really loved my skills and my field, and and made a name for myself, so to speak, uh, by creating innovative ideas. Uh, but you know, it's very different to be an individual contributor than it is to be a leader of an organization with sixty thousand employees. And so, I think a lot of leaders don't realize the magnitude of the change when you shift from, you know, what we'd probably in culture say, building your resume <laughs> to building the capability and the success of the enterprise. It's an entirely different job. And it's entirely about other people, not you. So, you know, the CEO job is figuring out how to bring the best out in the talent and the franchisees in the organization. It has very little to do with your personal skill set. 
So while mm. I still today love new product innovation, and I hope I'm still good at it, <laughs> uh, it's really not what the organization needs from me. They need strategy. They need talent development. They need a culture that creates an environment for success to occur. But they don't really need those original skills. Isn't that interesting? And was KFC the first time you were in the president's chair, like that top seat? That was the first time yes. that you really had to don that hat. So yes. if if you could walk us back to that and what were like two or three mistakes that just top of mind, you're like, yeah, when I was in the, you know, in between, you were on a couple of corporate boards, et cetera, for those four years between KFC and um, and Popeye's. What would you say were your two or three aha moments? You mentioned uh, not really considering the interests of franchisees well. What did you learn in your first run as the top leader in an organization, president, CEO? So at my first job, the first thing I learned was the importance of being prepared for that senior job. Mm. You know, a lot of us race to the top job. You know, we yeah. always think we're ready before we are. And so yeah. I often tell people now when they come in and say, gosh, I've got it now. I'm ready to be president. I say, oh, would you just go back and think about that a little bit? Because <laughs> you may not have all the skills. You know, when you become the head of the enterprise, you're running organizations you've never even worked in before. The IT right. department for me, you know, finance. I was not a finance executive. And so preparation is your biggest ally. I love people who have rotated through the different business functions and become well well-rounded before they get to the senior jobs because they're humbled by their experience, they're more knowledgeable, and they know enough to ask challenging questions of their leaders in those functions. So preparation is number one. Mm. I think I could have been better prepared. Number two, um, you have to know your model for success uh, in two ways, your skill model and your convictions about how business is conducted. Yeah. So I don't think I had enough confidence in my approach to business. I had very strong strategy skills, but I'm a long view player. You know, I, I guess in golf, you'd say, I, you know, I, I want to hit a long ball on the fairway, yeah. uh, not a Go short putt. And so that's all I know about golf. But I was a long view player working for an organization, a public company that was trying to deliver quarter-to-quarter -quarter results. So mm -hmm. all my worldview was around creating the long-term turnaround, and I missed the situation of a public company environment where you just don't have five years. You have five months to get some points on the board. Wow. The second thing I underestimated was I have convictions about how you work with people, how you collaborate, how you communicate, how you treat every single person you interact with with dignity in all circumstances. But the corporate world, frankly, doesn't encourage you on mm. those fronts. Uh, the corporate world says, hurry, be efficient, uh, don't waste all that time doing soft skill things. And I really believe in these things. I believe they drive business results. And so I didn't have the courage of my convictions around um, because I did know that franchisees were the most important asset, but I didn't have the confidence to make that clear to everyone else that I worked with that that would be the governor on how we operated. Uh, the second time around, I got that right. Yeah. 
No, those are really, really key lessons. And I think no matter what the size is of the enterprise that you're leading, a lot of us can resonate with that. And I mean, you inherited something big. I know there's a lot of leaders, pastors listening to this podcast, and they know in the next year or two, they're going to step into a church of 500, 1,000, 5,000 or bigger, and they're going to inherit it all. And that's really, really good um, advice. So in those four years between KFC and Popeye's, think about resiliency for a moment. What made you resilient? I, I, I know the backstory is you didn't apply for the job. You were basically asked to become the CEO of Popeye's, if I remember that correctly. But what made you say yes, that you would give it another try? Like, how did you bounce back and just not let that become the defining moment of your life when things ended at KFC? Well, you know, I think that long time away gave me a chance for healing, reflection, uh, kind of thinking about how we would approach it the next time. But I was not looking for a job when this came about. I was thinking that my role now would be to serve on boards and, and right. help other management teams do this. Um, but I have to admit, when they presented the opportunity to me, I love a really complicated, hard turnaround in business. It's my favorite thing to do. Hmm. Um, I'd spent years training up to do that. I w felt prepared to do it. And then I really did want to do it with my uh, convictions about how you do business. And, you know, now that I've written about it over the years, I had a real conviction about servant leadership, and I didn't see it expressed much in my career. Um, I don't think I ever worked for a leader that uh, was aspiring to be a servant leader. And so I wanted to try the things I believed, particularly in a public company, to see yeah. if – in fact, they would be effective. They would help me create the environment for high performance. And I could be just, you know, create this one case study called Popeyes that would help other leaders be confident in their approach. And that's really what I wanted to do in this last round of my career is I wanted to create a study in leadership that would encourage and help other leaders to lead uh, in a dare to serve way. Hmm. Well, you started at Popeyes in 2007. Um, tough scenario. They'd been through four CEOs in seven years. Um, one veteran franchisee, one of your you know people inside Popeyes, said, "Miss Cheryl, you don't expect us to trust you any, or don't expect us to trust you anytime soon. We're like abused foster children, and you're just the new foster parent." First, what did that do to you as a new leader? And secondly, how did you handle that and begin to change it? Well, it's etched in marble in my memory. You know, when somebody <laughs> says something that, you know, compelling and hard to ignore, it's etched forever in your memory. Um, but what it did for me, that kind of shock value of that yeah. statement is it immediately focused me on the most important part of my job of transforming the company, that it would be my job to rebuild trust with the franchise owners. It made it clear to me that it would not be fast because trust is lost quickly, but mm. it is slowed and hard to rebuild. It taught me to be patient, right? As I, you know, as you start a transformation, you want quick returns and quick results, and, and you can't get trust quickly. So no. it kind of put me in the right mindset for patiently building trust with our owners. 
And I would tell you, it was three years later when we reached a point of inflection where I would say, you know, I think we have a high trust relationship. It was three years after that day. Well, I think a lot of leaders who move into a situation that they inherit or a new role that they step in can relate to that, particularly in a dysfunctional system. And not every church is healthy. I mean, a lot of churches are very unhealthy. Uh, And so you've got a lot of people empathizing with you. But you said something interesting earlier. You said, you know, it's a publicly traded company, and, and KFC was, and so is Popeye's. And you would need some quick wins as well. So how did your plan change where you went from, you know, okay, I'm going to turn this around over time, but I know there's a lot of leaders who are looking for quick wins. Did you have any really quick wins in those first six months as CEO? Well, I wish I could say we did. Um, Our first year, uh, first two years were the toughest. And the reason Mm. was we created our plan got the team all focused on the vital few strategies, and then we got hit by the Great Recession in the fall of 08. Yeah, yeah. great time to take over. (laughs) That was September of 08 was when we made our single largest investment in relaunching the brand on television, national television, and that was the month that Lehman Brothers went bankrupt and the stock market crashed. And so I'll tell you what, we had nothing but the courage of our convictions in that first year uh, to build uh, trust with our franchisees. So what we did is we worked very hard at going aligned into battle. So when we did that national ad campaign in the fall of 08, our franchisees invested in it and the corporation invested. We co-invested We chose the promotion strategy together. We chose the ad campaign together. So we went in arm in arm. And thank goodness, because when the wheels came off, you know, everybody starts fleeing. And so I was so glad we'd invested in linking arms going into the storm so that as we analyzed and debriefed what was happening in a very fluid marketplace, uh, that we would stay focused on quick course correction but as a team, we would just come back in a room and go, well, that didn't work, but yeah. we're a team. And I think that agile course correction in a collaborative fashion uh, is what got us through those early days. And then when we started to get the small wins in the spring, um, oh my goodness, the the excitement <laughs> and the uh, you know, the friendship and the fun that started to erupt uh, with those first small wins. A small win for us is, you know, the June promotion finally worked, you know, right, right. Year of nothing working. And, um, you know, certainly that's when it got to be more fun. Um, but again, going back to what I said earlier, your trials, your rough spots are where real meaningful relationships and learning are forged. And so, I can tell you we've referred to those first 18 months time and time again as what forged our partnership because we went through some rough stuff together. It made us an even stronger team for the journey that was ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you're sharing this because I wonder, uh, and I want to talk to you about why you chose to focus on the franchisees because Uh, you talk about having different constituencies. You could have said, you know, as a CEO, I'm going to focus on the customer and what the customer wants, or what a lot of CEOs do in publicly traded companies, I'm going to focus on the shareholders and maximizing value. 
you excluded those and you decided you were going to focus on the franchisees, which obviously 18 months into it, when it's blow after blow after blow, is a good thing because you started to rebuild trust. But tell us why you chose them. You've already hinted at it a bit from your lessons at KFC, but I'd just love to drill down on that. Like, And and church leaders think about this. Who Who are your customers? Is your customers person you're trying to reach, somebody who sits in the back row? Is it a volunteer? Is it your staff? Like what, who are you going to focus your time on? You pick the franchisees. Tell us why. We actually had a meeting. Our senior leadership team had a meeting where we put on a flip chart every possible constituent we could serve. And we had shareholders, guests, employees, um, we had uh, the board of directors. We had accountants, regulators. The list had like 14, 15 different constituents on it. And my CFO raised his hand kind of limply and said, well, don't we have to please all those people? Right, right. And, you know, like, come on, do we even have to have this conversation? I think that's what most of our organizations do is they just make a long list and they go, oh, we have to make all those people happy. And it's yeah. not possible to right. do that all at once. It's just not possible. So what we started to discuss and debate was who had truly the most skin in the game of all our constituents. And it's a fairly straightforward discussion in franchising because the franchising model, we create an operating system and a marketing plan, but all the dollar investment of building the buildings, hiring the people, training the people, um, reaching out in the community, serving the food to the guests, that's all done by a franchise owner, and they sign a 20-year contract to do that for the brand. <laughs> that's a lot of skin. 20 years. <laughs> it's a lot of skin in the game. And it's the reason why they routinely look up at the corporate people and go, well, you're only going to be here three years, and we're going to be here another 17. So, you know, why do we care what you think? Um, I mean, for good reason, they're emotionally yeah. invested, they're financially invested. This is their sole livelihood. This is how they put their kids through college. So I think forcing the team to think that through and saying, you know, they have way more skin in the game than we do. Yeah, we got some stock options, but that's nothing compared to mortgaging your house for a business. Mm -hmm. And so working through that uh, and getting to the point where you actually could feel empathy for what they signed up to do, what risk they took, 40% of our franchise owners were immigrants to the United States that started wow. with zero. One of them will tell you a story of coming off the boat at Ellis Island with $2 in his pocket and sleeping in an alley in Harlem until he could get a job as a chicken fry cook at a chicken restaurant. You know, they have wow. incredible stories of risk-taking and courage and overcoming obstacles. You know, I have a corporate MBA. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, so I, I think choosing carefully, focusing intently on the one that has the most in the game that you can help the most. Here's how I think about the shareholder, which is the other kind of end of the spectrum, right? Everybody talks about, you know, the CEO's jobs to make the shareholder happy. But I will tell you, shareholders are purely the beneficiary of the company's operating outcomes. They don't do yeah. or create anything. Okay. True. So I loved my shareholders. I cared about their investment of capital in our business, but I didn't spend a lot of time trying to make them totally happy. 
happy because it was there was no path to doing that. If I didn't get the business turned around, they couldn't make a great return. So what I did with my shareholders is I explained to them that the franchisee would be my first focus as an organization. And if they wanted to know how we were doing at leading the turnaround of the company, they should call franchisees. And over time, that's exactly what they did. And they wow. found out for themselves whether we were doing a good job for the owners of our business. And it became, you know, a really signature trait of our company. We had the highest uh, franchisee satisfaction ratings in our category uh, year after year after year. The last year I was there, it was 95% satisfied owners. Um, and we started at 76%. So we really used that measure, you know, a measure every year of how we served them to determine whether we were on track. So let's talk about that, because I think you wrote in your book, you said um, that franchisees have elephant memories. They just never forget. And that would be really hard because you went to the place where they were, you know, that, that abused child kind of metaphor, like, hey, we don't trust you, had too many CEOs, uh, you're just another number at corporate office, to we're in this together, uh, we're going to do a big corporate spend. That happened 12 months into your tenure, and then things started to turn around. How, do you, how did you rebuild trust when trust was so shattered? Well, we had these two guiding principles um, that we used to guide all of our relationships and decision-making, and one was called, we do what we do with passion, and the other one was called, we make fact-based decisions. And it was very important to have both of them. Franchisees, by nature, being entrepreneurs, are a tad emotional and passionate. And you have to love it about them, right? Because they put it all on the line. But what we were able to balance that with were facts. When we began at Popeye's, we had no facts. We hadn't collected P&Ls on the restaurants. We had no idea whether our franchise owners were making money. It was very hard to have anything but an emotional discussion if you have no facts. So one of our first actions was to go collect the P&L on every restaurant, roll it up, look at it, and see how they are doing. And the funny thing is, you know, when a franchisee is making money, they're happy. (laughs) And when they're not (laughs) making money, they're unhappy. So it's pretty easy to predict. And so we started using those facts. One of my favorite anecdotes is one of my uh, curmudgeon franchisees from South Carolina came into a meeting and he said, that promotion we just did nearly bankrupted the system. And I said, well, Carrie, interestingly, the system's average profit per restaurant last month is the highest in history. He said, Hmm. how do you know that? I said, we now collect restaurant P&Ls. And he goes, well, dang, I guess you know. And he just, <laughs> you know, he laughs, did a little drum beat on the desk and went, Ka-chung! you know, it, it was it was a lovely exchange where the emotion was shifted to the facts and we were back in alignment again. And and that served us well at every step of the, of the journey. We, we ran a really transparent view of our facts, too. Mm. We didn't hold them close to our vest. I wonder about this in church land sometimes. You know, I think all organizations get little fiefdoms and silos yeah. and everybody kind of keeps their facts to themselves. 
but the facts will set us free, and the facts eliminate personality and personal interests, right, in these decisions. They kind of help us set aside the non-productive passion yeah. in favor of passion for getting to the truly right answer, which the numbers usually tell. Well, and there's an interesting backstory, uh, Cheryl, on how you, what you had to do to get those facts. Because when you went into the system and you had, you know, I don't know how many restaurants at the time, let's just pick a number, 1,000, 2,000 restaurants, franchisees, um, some of them, their P&Ls were like Excel spreadsheets. Other were on, others were on QuickBooks. Others were like, it was just a, a hodgepodge of systems. And what did you do? And that's where I think a lot of church leaders get discouraged because they come in and, you know, some guy's keeping the books on a hard drive on his computer and there's no centralized system. But you, you took some steps in those early days to get an, I mean, that's the first thing I used to be a lawyer, right? You have, you agree on the facts, which is sounds counterintuitive to what you see on TV, but you have an agreed statement of facts. So you get those facts agreed on, and then you can actually build a case. So how did you do that? You had to hire somebody, didn't you? Yes, but we hired a college intern for the summer. Okay. This is really relevant uh, to the church environment, you know, where you always are going to be saying, don't have enough resource, don't have enough technology, don't have enough of anything. So we didn't have enough of anything either. And I think the first thing you do is you go find the facts, put them in a format you understand, which first run is a spreadsheet, figure out how to use the data well. And, and you don't automate stuff like that till you know what you're doing. So I was really thankful we did that with paper, pencil, and spreadsheets initially, because by the time we automated that task and didn't need a college intern, we actually knew how we were going to use the data. And oh, by the way, you need to know how you're going to use the data to design yeah. technology. So walk before you run. You know, the information is somewhere. There's an intern somewhere who for $10 an hour will go find it. Uh, It doesn't need to be slick and pretty to get you to the answer you need. Yeah. And that was a a, a key moment in the turnaround. Anything else you did? I hear from leaders every week who are like, there's very little trust in this organization. There wasn't when you started. Any other keys to like how you got to be, uh, you know, the franchisees and, and, and corporate in the same, on the same team? Or have we covered it? Well, no, I, I think there's a, a few things. Um, we developed a one-page roadmap of what we were going to try to do. And it only had four strategies on it. It said we're going to make the brand resonate with the consumer again. We're going to make the restaurants faster, speed of service. Mm. We're going to make the franchisees more money. And then if we do those three things, we think they'll build some more restaurants. That was our total strategy stated on one page. Everybody could see it, understand it, and figure out where they could help to get that done. So total clarity about where we're going to go, what we're going to try to do, very focused. We weren't trying to do too many things, which is often a downfall. Then the second thing is uh, leaders absolutely must inspire and motivate and encourage. They have to be cheerleaders for the roadmap. Uh, If you don't believe, my goodness, who would? Um, You know, they say that in in, uh, research, they say 80% of senior executives are optimistic. I I believe it because Hmm. 
You have to be. Yeah, I was going to say, you have to be. Oh, my goodness. Because you want people to follow you somewhere, you know, right? And no one, you would never say, oh, I'm going to climb Mount Everest and the guide doesn't have a clue or any confidence in where we're going. <laughs> no, you want your guide to have skills and confidence that this can be done. It has to be plausible, right? Yep. I always say, test your plan. Is it plausible? Can you make a persuasive case? And then as the leader, do you spend time making the case to people, repeating, repeat, repeat, repeat? Um, it takes a long time for the organization to buy in with the same level of belief and passion that you have. But that's your job, to have the plan, communicate the plan, exhibit excitement for it. Um, and frankly, the only thing that really yields the true buy-in and belief that you want to have is evidence. So mm. until you get evidence of performance results, you're going to be the promoter, the persuader, the communicator extraordinaire uh, until you get the results, the score on the board. How did you personally handle in those, let's say, first two years before you really started to see results on the scoreboard? It must have been an internal dialogue between like, man, it really is bad. It probably was worse than you thought it was when you took the job and being that cheerleader. I think that's something that almost every leader wrestles with. You know, what did Jim, and you quote Jim Collins in your book, but it's like, you know, you got to name brutal, name brutal reality. You just got to name it. But then you mm -hmm. got to be that cheerleader too. How did you personally handle that tension in your own life, in your emotional makeup as a person, as a leader? Well, you know, it also, that tension is also what uh, yields the organization's enthusiasm and pride for what you're doing. Um, one of the things we shared with all of our employees is that we were rated number 98 out of 100 restaurant chains on speed of service. And talk wow. about a brutal reality. <laughs> um, that was ugly. I mean, we're in a category called quick service restaurants, QSR, <laughs> and we have slow service. And so we, we faced our brutal reality. And we said, we're not quitting until that number moves, you know, so, and then we put a team on it and they built a plan and they helped the restaurants buy equipment and train the people and then measure the speed of service. So it's all the way from thinking about what the brutal reality is to creating the plan, the resources, the tools to help the organization overcome it and then measure, measure, measure. We literally, we started uh, the number of seconds of the drive-through, our goal was 180. Some restaurants started at 400 seconds, <laughs> you know, forget, you know, which is just terrible. Um, and but we did cheer with every improvement. You know, we'd get the national average, and we'd be down five seconds, and we'd cheer and celebrate, yeah. and then we drive to the next. Um, so there, you want to keep that tension between the facts. Uh, and the encouraging words that keep people's head in the game uh, to get to the destination. And we made it to 180 seconds um, over time. And there was a lot of cheering when we got there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's incredible. And, and, and I think it is. It's that toggle between, you know, what you're seeing and what you want to see. So one more question on the early days, which is... Um, a lot of people think when they head into leadership, I got to fire this whole team and start over again, bring my own people in. Were you able to do this turnaround with like, obviously the franchisees didn't change, but 
did you have to make a lot of team changes at the senior level or were you able to, how, how did you handle that? Um, at the very beginning, I knew the whole management team because I was sitting on the board. So I had yeah. the opportunity to have had prior experience with them, which was really terrific. We knew each other. We could talk things through. They could really help me forge a plan. I did um, know enough at the outset to make the decision to bring two outside executives in to the team. Uh, I think we had eight or nine senior leaders at that time. So I replaced two of them. Uh, because I felt like the two functional areas, it was the brand leader and the operations leader, were mission critical and that those two areas would have to move at a faster pace than any other function for us to achieve success. And I knew these two executives, so it also I knew they could role model the how we would do business um, and there'd be an advantage to the organization more quickly picking up on the culture that we wanted to create. So you know, you do sometimes have to really bring in some game-changing talent that can set the kind of set the expectations and the pace uh, for how you're going to change the or the uh, the company and the turnaround. Um, but everybody else stayed the same, and so then you become uh, a listener to the organization. You learn the organization, the capabilities of the people. Are they in the right jobs? Do they have the right skills? Are you training them and developing them? Um, and then you can do a more full assessment uh, through the organization, which we did over time. We, then, we got into a process of setting clear expectations for people, knowing our people well, having a development plan for every person, and then an annual talent review across the entire enterprise where we talked about every leader in the organization and their progress that year. So we built a real systematic way to look at talent. By the end of my tenure at Popeyes, I had brought in another two or three senior executives because we'd reached a step change and capability needed to go forward. And I think this is really important in church world as well. You know, let's say the church is going to implement a game-changing technology approach mm -hmm. to church. You need a game-changing IT person to lead that. You and really do. If, and if you haven't had that capability, you have to be honest about that with yourself and with the organization. And we literally stood in front of our organization and said, we have to build game-changing IT capability. We're going to hire a new CIO. Uh, we're going to ask him to do a total strategic plan around how we're going to operate with technology. And we're going to have to invest a huge hunk of our resources there. And oh, by the way, the rest of you, you folks are going to feel some pain from that because uh, wow. the hiring budget's going over here. The dollars are going over here. Uh, so that we can be uh, a great organization long term. So you tell the truth about that, but you don't shy from the changes that are required to advance the enterprise and its performance. I think that's one of the things that makes your story even more remarkable is, I mean, you can't really fire the franchisees. They're there. You could have ignored them. That was a choice. But it was even largely the same people that around a new vision, new leadership, fresh objectives, clarity really became capable of something entirely different. Um, we're pretty deep in the weeds on the turnaround, but I'm sure there's probably, I don't know, three to five 
keys to it? If we've hit on a couple already, just recap them. But what are three to five keys to the turnaround when you look at the decade journey? Just walk us through them. So I'll put them in three categories. Okay. Um, And the words may sound a tad familiar, but I'll elaborate. The first word is how daring will you be? The daring courage, because most organizations aren't honest enough with themselves about the degree of change that's actually required. Mm -hmm. So they set small incremental change goals that don't get them to a big transformation. And so I think one of the most important things we did was have the courage to call out. We said, we're going to move this uh, company from stores that do a million dollars to stores that do a million two. And we actually delivered a million four stores by the time we got done. So you know, we set out to change the game. We were not doing small incremental change. We were going somewhere. We were going to go big. The second thing um, that really differentiated us from our peers in the category, because everybody can have a bold plan, right? That's not yeah. unique. Everybody can do that. But what really made us unique was the serving part. We've talked a fair amount about serving the franchise owners well, so I'll say that we've had that covered. The other people we had to learn to serve well were our team members. You know, talent development and coaching is one of the most underdeveloped capabilities of any organization. I yeah. I run into this all the time in church land. Nobody sets expectations. Nobody has a job description. Nobody has a performance review. Nobody has a feedback session. There's no mm. talent review process. There's just all this hallway talk about how mediocre our people are. Well, they're <laughs> mediocre because you don't spend any time coaching, developing, and putting process in place um, to take care of the growth and development of your people and make sure they're in the right assignments, right? So it takes humility is the word that I would use, the idea that others are more important than your self-interest. If you want people to get excited about your bold business plan, you better be excited about them and what you're going to do to grow and advance them and help them reach their potential, because that happens to be what they care about most. Do you mind if I just interrupt and drill down on that for a minute? Because this is becoming a recurring theme. Henry Cloud talked about it on this podcast, William Vanderblum and Brian Miles, but that that willingness to invest in your team. And I just want to go there. So what were the kinds of things that you did before we get to the other keys? What were some of the things that you did that took your team, and by that I, I guess you probably mean your head office team, how did you invest in them? What what did you do that made them better? Because I think you're right. A lot of churches, they're like, yeah, we don't have money for conferences. We don't have money for training. We don't have resources. And we, they put nothing in them and then complain about mediocre results. Yeah, so the first thing the first thing is exactly what you said. This is the problem. We think all training is done by somebody else at a seminar that we send you to. Right. What training and coaching is, 70% on the job, 20% mentoring or coaching from your supervisor, and 10% read books and go to seminars. So we need to work on the 90%. Uh, and it doesn't cost dollars and cents. What it costs is time, planning, preparation. Yeah. Um, And what we usually do, and I would guess this could happen at church too, is we usually say somebody in HR is responsible for talent when all the talent works for us, the (laughs) leaders of the functions, okay? They work, 
on our teams, we are responsible for their talent and their development. So what are some of the things that I do? First, I invest in getting to know the talent really well, maybe even better than they know themselves. I'm a fan of assessments. I love strength finder type assessments that focus on the wiring and strengths of the person. I like exercises that help me know their values and beliefs. I used one, uh, Maxwell has these value cards that you sort, choose your top three. I mean, it's a simple way to get the discussion on the table. I use life maps to ask people, show me the life-changing experiences that have made you who you are. I mean, these are get-to-know-you experiences. And as we get to know each other better, we get a whole lot more clues about how to put the talent in the best place, how to develop them well. Uh, We get kind of the wiring card right on the person. And we create a more transparent workplace where they feel safe to be themselves. Hmm. So first, really go deep and get to know the people. Then create a coaching routine. And a coaching routine, this is how I I talk to senior leaders about it, is plan to spend a third of the week uh, coaching your team and individuals. I spent all day Monday and Tuesday with my team and individual direct reports, 90 minutes per person, one-on-one, and then about a two and a half hour staff meeting on Tuesday mornings for everybody. Uh, In that time, that was two of my five days invested in making sure we're on the same page with expectations, we're monitoring results, we're solving problems and making swift decisions for the people. Uh, It was immeasurably important to our success to invest that time. Um, And that's what people tell you is important to them. I love the Gallup uh, study on engagement. People want to know what you expect. They want to feel valuable, like they have something they bring to the party. They want to know the purpose of the organization and how they fit. Um, They want honest feedback frequently. They want someone who cares enough to say thank you periodically. You know, it's what all of us It's pretty simple. Yeah. It's very simple. You can Google Gallup Q12 index and find the 12 questions of what all meaning and work comes from. And you know it inherently in your soul because you've had a good boss once or you've had a terrible boss once (laughs) and you know the difference. So I I just think we completely – we need to be accountable for investing our personal time in the development of other human beings. And we need to get organized and prepared to do that. Mm, No, that's extremely helpful. And again, you're right. That doesn't cost anything. That just – well, Mm -hmm. it does. It costs your time. And it means that you have to care about something beyond just your immediate to-do list or your inbox or whatever. You're investing in people, which is great. Okay, walk us through the last one or two keys to the turnaround. Well, you know, I talked about daring and serving. And so the third one is performing. And Mm. I particularly like to talk about this third leg of the stool in church land because there's like this guardedness, like maybe we really can't talk about performing in church. But I would put this thesis on the table. You cannot serve the people well and have a failing organization. It's not Mm. possible. You know, great things happen to people in a positive and thriving organization, you know, like promotions, like more responsibility or, or new things and new challenges to work on. I mean, anything interesting in career growth comes from a growing, healthy organization. It cannot come during layoffs. 
and discouraged, you know, downbeat times. So if you say you're a servant leader, or I like to say if you aspire to be a servant leader, you've got to serve up the results as well and create a place that really people go, wow, I want to grow here. This place is going somewhere. It's the way part of serving, and we cannot leave it off the charts in Christian organizations either because it's part of thriving. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you pointed that out. And you talk about that. You talk about servant leadership with um, high-performing teams. Like, we're, we're going to hit some metrics. I mean, you're, you're involved in a local church. You happen to be at a very successful church in many respects. But why in, in your travels do you think in church world we don't do well with performance? Why do you? Because it is, I agree. I mean, I hear about it every week in the stuff I write in the comments. Like, uh, there's no, why are you so obsessed with growing churches or, you know, reaching people? Like, can't we just be happy with what we have? We have this kind of mediocre culture that we're okay with. Yeah, and I don't think that's biblical. Um, yeah. You know, first of all, God assignments aren't small. You know, uh, Moses, for example, right? You know, uh, he didn't he didn't give out you know cowardly assignments to people. He gives out challenging, big. You know, I love Joshua a lot because he had to follow Moses. Good Lord, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good and, luck, and step into those shoes. You know, and all God said to him was, "Be strong and courageous. You're going to do big things." You know, <laughs> um, so I think if we're working for God, we're working for really big stuff, really big God-given callings. So it's important, right? And so the second thing is, I think there's lots of evidence in the Bible that uh, God asks us to fully use our gifts and to do things in an excellent way. You know, I absolutely love a church that starts and ends on time. I mean, you <laughs> you make a promise to people when you invite them to church that it starts at 11 and ends at 12:15. And if you mess with that every week, they can't trust you, okay? Yeah. It sounds silly, but this is how trust is built. Trust is built with an understanding uh, of what I need from you and you need from me and then we live by it, right? We honor our promises to one another, and whether it's to the audience that they know what to expect at church, or whether it's to an employee, and they know what you expect and how to meet those expectations. So um, I think excellence is biblical. Hmm. Um, and um, I, you know, I've had many uh, people who know the Bible better than me to point out that there's not a lot of winning and performance talk in the Bible. I yeah. get it. I agree. I mean, you have to basically talk about the one verse about run the race, well run, <laughs> perseverance. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I lean on that verse a lot too. But I do think it's biblical teaching that running the race God calls out for you includes doing your very level best, yeah. because learning, growing, reaching for higher goals and challenges to because it's all about honoring Him, right? If we believe mm-hmm. we have an audience of one, wouldn't we want to do? our very best, best work. So uh, the way I've reconciled it in my mind is that I am, I am asked by God to serve business enterprise and to do it to the best of my abilities and that high performance would be honoring to God. That's how mm. I think about it. And if I do less than my best, uh, it is dishonoring to someone that I care a lot about making being pleasing to. Well, here's the verse that motivates me, and I think you're right. I mean, I mean it, 
this kind of talk falls on hard times sometimes in the church. But I think it was Jesus, and in the Old Testament, he's quoting the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, which is everything you got in you, and all your mind. We often park our brains at the door when it comes to church, right. and you don't need to. Like, everything that's in you um, should be put to the mission that God has given you. And so I, I think that's thoroughly biblical. So high results, high performance, um, really, really good. Anything else on the turnaround that comes to mind? Well, I, would, I want to build on that last point you made, because hmm. I talked to a pastor of a large church this morning about this very topic. Using all the tools that are available to you, in large churches, one tool that's available to you is mark, called market research. Yes. If your membership is declining and you don't know why, you can do exactly what a corporation does, is you can ask people why they're leaving your church, and they will give you real insight that you can change things yep. for, and you can better meet the needs of your con congregation if you understand them. In a small congregation, you can actually invite six of them out to lunch and ask them and say, you know, what are we doing that's not meeting your needs in our community? And you can come up with a thesis on how to get better um, and meet the needs of your congregation. And that's that's what we do in business. We meet the needs of our customers. So it's, there's a lot of parallels. Oh, I think you're right. And, and you know, even talk to some unchurched people about that, about why they don't go to church. And I think one of the reasons we run away from that sometimes, Cheryl, is because it feels like bad news. But that's what you had. You had one or two years of bad news. Like, we are 98 out of 100 in terms of quick service. We, you know, franchisees don't trust us. Uh, they have elephant memories. Um but again, facts are your friends, right? And so if you see those things, then you know what you need to fix. So I, I walk straight towards the problems. And I may be mm. weird, but I really want to encourage your listeners on this point. If there are three fundamentally broken things in your church and you know the facts around them, walk, you know, walk straight into the oven, okay? Um, <laughs> Because conquering those three things will unlock an incredible outpouring of what God intends to do, right? He needs the leader to walk in straight into the fire, tackle the hardest things, and have a breakthrough. Um, and uh, I, you know, I want to leave people charged up today to take those tasks head on. I, an, an anecdote from my early Popeye's days I asked the team to do one of those meetings where you write on the wall what all the problems are in the company. Right. So they did it, and then they narrowed them down to the top 10, like every meeting you do, right? And I said to them, are those the right problems to solve? You know, expressing, you know, expecting kind of applause. And one woman raised her hand. She goes, Cheryl, rewrite those problems on the board every year. What we'd really like to do is solve them. <laughs> and I was breathless. I couldn't speak for a few minutes because her candor just was a smack in the head. But that's it. She said, I have complimented her so many times for saying that because Sandra had the guts to call us on the carpet and say, you know, if we were really brave, courageous leaders, we'd actually fix these problems. Wow. Um, so that's what our followers need from us in the church and in the business community. No, and, and that is a problem in a lot of churches, a lot of businesses, frankly. It, we're still trying to say, solve the problems we diagnosed a decade ago or five years ago. But you had the courage 
to do it. Anything else on the turnaround? I mean, I could I could just camp on this all day. I've got a lot of other things I'd love to ask you too. Oh, it's it have fun along the way, right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, this yeah. Is, you know, this is um, I I'm one of those people. You can hear it. My wiring. I want to skid into heaven sideways. I am. I don't take many breaks. I don't. Um, I work a lot of hours. I'm an intense kind of person, but for a good reason and a good cause, uh, you know, which is uh, work is an immensely big part of our life. And so is working in a church. Working in a church is a job just like working in a restaurant. It should be a thriving place where you go excited to be there for what you're going to work towards, excited to partner with the people and excited about the results you're creating. This is fun stuff. And we need more leaders who frame it up that way for the followers Hmm. and create environments where they really want to be there. One of the stories, sub-stories of Popeyes is rapid scale. I mean, the turnaround was massive, shareholder value, you added new restaurants all the time. Uh, Not every leader listening is part of a dying or flat organization. There's a lot of growing churches represented too. Any lessons for us on scale and how you manage to 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 grow this rapidly, um, because that can be a challenge too. Everything has problems. Decline has problems. Growth has challenges. Uh, what yes, are the lessons does. you want to share on scale? Uh, very important topic because the rapid growth organizations are topsy turvy, chaotic um, mm-hmm. places to be, and so the leaders have to see out in front. You know, if you were leading a um, uh, a group of people up the mountain, the leader is out front looking to see what needs to happen next. You usually wait too long to staff and resource on your big mm. game-changing needs. That's that's the biggest learning I would tell you. The example I'd give you for us is we needed to invest sooner in international growth, but we were right. so consumed by the work of doubling the size of the U.S. business that we kept running out of energy and dollars and talent mm. to grow international. Uh, but it, we needed to figure that out. Uh, IT was the same thing. It, we lived with massive IT problems for eight years. We should have gone after it sooner. So I would say, you know, pick one or two uh, things that are going to kill you if you don't address <laughs> them um, and get ahead of them. You can't be ahead of everything in a growth organization, but it, it's essential to get ahead of your big strategies. And the other uh, counsel is, um, Growing, fast-growing organizations forget the importance of process, and yeah. process is actually more important than your big idea because it is what will help your big idea get done. <laughs> and so, uh, create process around these things. Uh, the example I'd give you there is: we wanted to double the number of new stores we opened every year. Mm-hmm. Well, that meant we had to double the number of real estate people and double the number of construction people and teach them new skills and buy them new technology. And we had to create, you know, the process to get to 200 restaurants a year. It didn't just happen with a magic wand. Um, So uh, getting ahead of things with staffing resources and process would be my thought. Thinking about how you spent your time, I mean, there must have been some personal scaling up too. I mean, one of the ironies of leadership is most of us are leading the biggest thing we've ever led. And that would be true for you at Popeye's. When you think about a use of your time, how did you increase your personal capacity over that decade? You raise a very important point that uh, I think leaders, including myself, uh, are 
tend to forget. And that is the organization really can't grow faster than the leader. Mm -hmm. Um, If the leader, um, I'll refer back to information technology and international. I was not an experienced executive in either one of those areas. I had to identify them as game changers. I had to hire the leader and I had to supervise the plans. And that's scary, right? For a a leader uh, and senior leader can't tell anybody it's scary because you got to look confident. So, (laughs) you know, you're sweating bullets. Um, as you have to grow ahead of these opportunities. And, and so uh, the thing I would just encourage, encourage, encourage is never stop learning as a leader. You know, I can learn technology in the restaurant business. I can learn how to scale internationally, but I have to have incredible listening ears. I have to read everything in print. I have to invest in becoming a uh, capable executive, even after working 35 years. So yeah. never, never, you know, stop learning and uh, figuring out what you need to know to lead your organization to the next level. When you were at Popeye's, you're sort of at a, a nice little rest point right now where you're looking at what's next. But uh, when you're at Popeye's, can you walk us through how you used your time? Because you are a family person as well. You're married, you have kids, you are involved in your church, you you know, you know, have a life. How did, how did you, mm. well, balance, I don't even want to use that word, but how did you manage all that? Well, I, I think um, a couple of things come to mind. The thing that has helped me the most in my life, work, and community service is to know why I'm doing it. Um, I have a personal purpose statement. You know, Stephen Covey called them mission statements. There's different things you can call them, but it's really becoming crystal clear um, about your calling, your talent, and where where you're going to apply yourself. Um, For me, that statement is to inspire purpose-driven leaders who exhibit competence and character in all aspects of their life. It helps Hmm. me make decisions to have that statement, including my family decisions. I've raised three girls that are now 31, 26, and 24. I am developing leaders in those young women. I have been since they were born. I've been teaching Uh them character lessons, skills, education, uh, family values, church. You know, parents are in charge of leadership development. And so my calling to be the development of leaders has helped crystallize where I spend my time at church. I'll be honest, at church, I've been had to be honest a couple times that I am not qualified to do two-year-old Sunday school. Do not ask <laughs> me to do that. There are people very, very good at that and called, and I'm not one of them. But if you're going to have a strategic plan review or figure out leadership development for pastors, call me. I can help. I was just going to ask you, where do you want to get plugged in? Because that's an issue for a lot of high-capacity leaders. It's like, I don't want to stand at the door and greet. Not that there's any problem with that, but um, is that, that would, you would jump at that opportunity. I do. I, mm. I just got asked to be on the stewardship committee at my church because they said they needed my experience in large, complex financial organizations. Yay! You know, I, I can <laughs> All day help. Long. I, I can do something with that, right? So I think the church has a huge opportunity to reach out to their uh, business and community leaders and just ask the question, what do you love to do and how could that skill 
how could we use that skill in the church? I, I could have given my pastor of the last 40 years an idea every week, but my pastor never asked or my, the staff person never asked. I just got the same email everybody else did that said, be a greeter, bake cookies, and do two-year-old Sunday school. And yeah. I had to struggle to find my fit. Um, you know, and it's up to me too. I don't put it yeah. on the church, right? It's up to me to find my way to serve. Um, but I do think the church misses opportunities to draw uh, leaders in and use their God-given skills. When you look at your time as a CEO, uh, you already gave us Monday and Tuesday where you spent it investing in people. What were some of the highest value adds looking back that you're like, okay, I could spend, I should be spending 20% of my time doing X, 30% doing Y. What, what are those things that got you the most leverage when you were in that role? So we talked about coaching being two days out of five or, or seven, depending on how you count. <laughs> yeah, depending on the two week. Two days of the week, you know, like a third of the time. Uh, the second one I would draw to the leader's attention is communicating. Um, the mm. leader's number one job after coaching is to communicate the direction where we stand, how we're doing the cultural traits, the principles that we will operate to, um, communication to every stakeholder group. That too, by the way, needs a process. I created a communication process. My communications leader was one of the most important leaders on my team because we were taking the business strategies, talent strategies, culture strategies, and communicating them out to each constituent with the appropriate messaging. So there was a communication strategy for shareholders. There was one for franchise owners. There was one Mm. for employees. There was one for the board of directors who we reported to. So, But everyone had a vehicle for communicating to them and a schedule of how often we communicated to them. We made that a huge part of our work. Um, I think we all know how hard it is to keep an organization on track, right? Yes. And communication is the way you do that. Um, I, For the first three years, I personally wrote a letter to the franchise owners every Sunday night for three years uh, because I said, we can't miss a beat. In the first mm. three years, we can never be out of sync. And I would say, this is what I heard this week. This is the problem I bumped into. This is what we're doing about it. This is what you can expect. I mean, it is a letter, so I couldn't get feedback on that vehicle, but I could stay in a a conversation. And people would write notes back. They'd say, oh, got your letter this morning. Here's my thought. So it's a constant outreach. And then when I needed face-to-face feedback, I went out to six or seven locations and did town halls. And just listened, mm. just took feedback. But I had protocols for each of those things and timelines for them so that they would become routines in my life and they'd be built in my calendar. How did you take care of you? You know, uh, I think that's the area I'm probably least qualified to teach in. <laughs> sure, fair enough. <laughs> you know, I, I will be vulnerable and transparent. I, I don't think I have great instincts on self-care. I do have a bit of a people-pleasing personality. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in everything, which means I don't have great boundaries because uh, everything sounds fun and interesting. Um, and I like people so much. I'm undisciplined with my time. I talk to you way past the deadline, and then I'm <laughs> running late. So I have. I, I am not one of those brilliantly disciplined people. But here's 
what I can say to other people struggling like me is you do, the people who fought, try to follow you, they need a healthy leader. They need someone whose cup is full to the brim so that you can spill out and help and encourage and, and fill their cups. Um, and so I have worked hard to make sure that there's some rhythms in my life that replenish me and make me healthy. I always get seven, eight hours of sleep. I always eat breakfast. I always take vitamins. I always drink two cups of coffee. I mean, those are rhythms, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? And they're part it. of preparing to be available to people all day long. Um, I do something spiritually, which um, I try to do daily quiet time, but it, I just am not, again, I'm not a routine person. So I kind yeah. of rebel against the same 20 minutes every day. So different times of day. And then I like to take silent retreats, a day of absolute science, silence with my Bible and the Lord once a quarter. And oh wow. my gosh, he can, he can fill up your cup big uh, <laughs> if you give him a whole day. And uh, you can go for quite a few days on, on the power of the Holy Spirit. So one of the things I, I love about the, the Bible verse about the fruits of the Spirit is right after that, the verse people most people miss is the fruits of the Spirit are enjoyed when you are walking at the pace of the Spirit. Hmm. And so I have that written on a post-it note on my mirror. Am I walking at the pace of the Holy Spirit? You know, try getting out in front of God. It doesn't go well. No, it, no, doesn't. it doesn't. Go well. No, it doesn't. You know, and I do it. I've been in that movie. So I think, you know, catching ourselves and saying, whoa, I, I need to pause. I need a Sabbath day. I need reflection time. I need sleep. I need to stop eating so many carbs, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, that's really tipping your cup over. Um, for the sake of the people you lead, you've got to take care of yourself. Mm, I appreciate that. People are going to want to read your book and uh, they're probably going to want to find you online. So what's the easiest thing? Tell us about that. I blog at a site called Serving Performs and you can find that at www.cherylbatchelder.com. C-H-E-R-Y-L-B-A-C-H-E-L-D-E-R.com. We were talking about how Great. hard our names are. Yeah, yeah, Newhoff Batchelder. But it's, it's yours is intuitive. I've heard it pronounced many different ways, but that's how I would have said it. And uh, we'll link to all that in the show notes. Cheryl, I can't thank you enough. I feel like I just got an executive MBA. That's what I feel like over the last hour and a quarter. So thank you. My pleasure. It's a delight to be with you. The dialogue was fun for me too. Well, that was pretty much a master class, wasn't it? That that was unbelievable. Cheryl, thank you so much for your generosity, for the ample amount of time you invested into leaders, for sharing so freely. I know you'll want to check out the show notes, so go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 182. Also, um, make sure you pick up a copy of her book, Dare to Serve. It's a great book. You can get it anywhere books are sold, and all the links to that are in the show notes. So head on over to kerrynewhoff.com. If you can't remember how to spell that, leadlikeneverbefore.com will get you there too. Hey, we're back next week. We got a fresh episode, and uh, well, who's in the house next week? We've got Todd Wilson, and this is a fun conversation, okay? Uh, I knew nothing about the nuclear Navy, but seriously, we just... I mean, we tackle different subjects here. Todd spent time in the nuclear Navy, and he shares leadership lessons from it. There is such a thing in the nuclear Navy. He studied under Admiral Rickover. Like, that is a name that I know from leadership circles, and he spills the beans on that 
Todd's the founder of Exponential, and uh, man, he's got so much to share. Listen in. Let me share with you a technique that the Admiral used at Naval Reactors, actually. Um, we were very territorial. This whole idea of responsibility and ownership. When you worked at Naval Reactors, you owned something. And ownership, the Rickover meant you felt like you were going to have it the rest of your life. Like you, you're, you're going to bear the consequences. So we would get into daily lots of fights. Now, ironically, biblically, at the end of the day, we're all friends, but we would just adamantly fight for our position on things. And every once in a while, we'd have to end up in the admiral's office where the admiral would be the tiebreaker between people on the fights we were having. And here's what the admiral would do when we'd get into a fight. He'd have somebody go to the whiteboard and he'd have them make three columns. The first column was, what is the worst possible thing that could happen if we do this. And here's what's interesting, Carrie. We usually could all be united on what the worst possible thing was, no matter what side you were on. Then the Admiral would say, what's the least problem? What's the least significant thing that's going to happen out of this? And ironically, we could be united on what the least likely thing was. And then he would have you go to the middle column and say, now, what is the most probable thing that's going to happen if we do this? And the probable thing is always somewhere between those two bookends of what's the thing that can happen and what's the least thing that's going to happen. And somehow that most probable question had a way of uniting people on a path forward. That's next week. Again, subscribers, you get that for free. Also, uh, have an incredible, like such an honest interview with Brian Houston coming up. Greg Atkinson is back. Tim Elmore, Jessica Bueller, Gina McLean. Um, man, so many others. You, you, you're going to love it. So we're, we're working really hard on bringing you a fantastic lineup for 2018. Thanks for your feedback. Thank you for the show reviews. Thank you for uh, your sharing this on social media, telling your friends about it. Uh, whatever we can do to serve you, count us in. And we're back next week with a fresh episode. Make sure you check out trainedup.church. Get your 10% off for life by using the coupon code CARRY. And we're back next week. I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.